Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. This is uh, Alan Garfinkel, your host for episode 102. We're bringing back Tritha Mukahabade, Fulbright Scholar from Mexico, talking about the archaeology of emotions. We'll be talking about rock art and how it is alive. Well, welcome, everybody, out there in rock art podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and... We're blessed and honored to have our most popular guest scholar, Dr. Tirtha Mukahabadai from Mexico with us again. And I'm gonna, we're going to call this particular episode sort of uh, the Archaeology of Motions Part 2. How about that, Tirtha? We ha- are you with us? Yes, I'm with you, Alan. Thank you very much for inviting me. And once again, always a pleasure to be with you. We could definitely call it... Archaeology uh, of Emotions, Part 2, and it should lead us, as we were talking about it a few moments ago, we could generally try and also look at the origin of religions from the perspectives that we are. Yeah, pick up that theme as well. So how would you, li- how would you like to kick it off, Doctor? Yes, thank you, Alan. 
I guess we could start off from where we left in the last uh, podcast conversation on the uh, emotive uh, quality of rock art templates. And I've given that a lot of thought and it's been interesting. You know, I was mm-hmm. reflecting on that particular theme and I went back and listened to some of my earlier episodes of the right. uh, rock art podcast and came across the uh, piece that was done on archaeoacoustics. And I thought that mm-hmm. uh, it was rather remarkable because uh, Steve Waller had mm-hmm. said specifically how his spirits were buoyed and he was shocked when uh, he found that many, if not most, of the rock art sites that he has researched have mm-hmm. an echophonic property. And that in part plays into this way in which the rocks begin to speak themselves. Mm-hmm. It's a mysterious and overwhelming and remarkable realm of communication where we we have this flavor that the spirits themselves, the supernaturals, are communicating from inside the rock envelope. How's that? Yes, that sounds interesting indeed. I guess you you are also referring to the notion of um, the the whole concept of psychoacoustics. Yes, of, of place. Yes, and uh, primarily, even if we consider the very empirical nature of the location or the space that surrounds rock art, uh, that that incorporates and surrounds at the same time rock art representations, rock art depictions. The one thing that we are confronted with immediately is is the quality of the silence, the vast sway of of nature and land, and uh, untold yet, if we are sensitive to the properties of place, we seem to identify eerie feelings of being there, of being connected to very strange sensations of of space, and above all, silence. I'm not very familiar with archaeoacoustics in the sense that I do not have much experience or feel experience studying archaeoacoustic properties. For instance, you have, uh, I guess, done more uh, studies on this theme along with our young scholar from Santa Cruz. Right. Uh, But I I think that what the issue is in a broader sense Mm -hmm. is, is these particular sites have an inherent spirituality and the images have a a numinous nature by their very characterization. And the sites and places that are selected for rock art are often, if not overwhelmingly, remarkable places for their drama, for their particular topographic, what would you put it? it it's yeah. sort of the, to, the to, it's, it's, a, it's a landform that speaks to us. One of the things that, that came to me, which surprised the heck out of me, there was mm-hmm. a woman that, that took a trip down uh, Little Petroglyph Canyon right. with, with me. She'd never been out there. And she's an, an author and had written uh, a lot of children's books about uh, some of this 
this uh, subject matter we're talking about, about the animal master and about uh, some of his qualities. Mm-hmm. And, and as, as she began to descend into the bowels of the earth, because the canyon itself is invisible until you get there and you see it, and it goes into the interior of the ground and goes deeper and deeper and deeper. She, she said, well, Alan, you've missed the whole point. This whole particular canyon, this whole landform, all of these images speak to the animal mistress, animal master concept. And she went through a chapter and verse and showed me how this is the, the underworld, netherworld of the super mundane beings that transmogrify and bring back the animals and allow them to live and be eternal beings. Well, that's, uh, uh, I couldn't have narrated a more <laughs> wonderful story, but uh, surely the, the wind, the, the passage of winds, the, the path of winds and uh, the sounds that, that these natural forms make against each other through their interactions and uh, the very nature of silence in these vast uh, ecologically alive and animated locations absolutely these are, these are and and the and the shamans were so sensitive they were it's, i mean the word that that's just coming to my mind right away is sensibilize sensibilization which is which is like you get you get to sensitize yourself to this deeply animistic talking nature talking stones is that's what that's the title of the uh, documentary that you made on the coastal rock arts isn't it it is and i think it's it's very appropriate because even when you're there and you're viewing these images at a rock art site the images are silent and you're silent but you have this feeling, this sensitivity, this this sort of overwhelming unction that the images have something to say. You don't know what they're saying, maybe, but you think, but you know that they're communicating to you. This was uh, absolutely one of those very interesting themes which were developed by some psychologists uh, who who were studying the effect of awe, uh, A-W-E-O, or wonder, the sense of vastness or admiration. And I was quite surprised to find uh, this may not be a case of mathematical uh, straitjacketing, but um, while studying the properties of all the the oral effects, in fact, in, uh, in archaeoacoustics, there is prevalence of the term oralization of landscape. Mm-hmm. So the landscape okay. creates a, a holistic, uh, a total integrated aura out of the interanimation of certain factors in the landscape. And uh, in psychology, very interestingly, there are references to the psychological effects, effectances as they call it in psychology, that's just one the, the, the one of those technical phrases that you use 
affections, motivation, and they and they speak of they try to categorize or identify the the several factors that create the oralization effect. And one of this is uh, is a, a sense of self uh, a time an altered time perception, an altered time perception which is born out of an intense engagement with the object of view or with the with the sensations of sound the acoustics and and you lose the sense of time or you f- begin to feel a, a sense of more intense intenser time of being there presence there's reference in the literature to the to a sense of self-diminishment, which is uh, provoked by fear or some kind of uh, supernatural sensation. And uh, one of the other secondary factors which which creates the sense of oralization is, is the context of the vastness of the landscape, of, of, of the sublime nature, of those features and the the flow of wind and the sound effects that they create, so the the whole sense of self. So how do we characterize the feelings of a viewer who is placed in the middle of these formations, natural formations, and they are looking at these marks? which on, on the rock sur- surface, which are trying to tell them something. I have been to an underground location, a subterranean river location in central India, where the river keeps running for a couple of kilometers and uh, creating very small cataracts or uh, these waterfalls. And the... Uh, sensation of sound or the water and the silence within a subterranean passage they come together with very eerie effects and uh, motivations or maybe even withdrawal a sense of you know the, the total oralized being that we associate with uh, the landscapes so I think what we're talking about, and the, to sort of bring it somewhat of full circle, is we're talking about transcendence or a transcendent feeling, some sort of connection to the celestial, supernatural, creator, beings, this overwhelming sense of uh, connectivity and, I don't know, sensuality, I guess, is part of it too. It's the hedonic tone. Uh, the hedonic tone of that awareness, of that feeling, which is very exceptional, and yet which is something, which is supernatural. And it's it's a very fertile ground for ritual experiences. Yes. And it would make some sense to me that there would be ceremonies of dancing, singing, drumming, or other kinds of cooperative or collaborative or ceremonial groupings that would occur in association with those kinds of imagery. Am I correct? Yes, this is uh, what we could call, uh, or what what you just mentioned, this 
the, the pro-social actions of being together and 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 uh, celebrating with with the drums the rhythmic unison the, the, the that rhythmic harmony that the most ancient musical forms create some of which is of course still evident the roots the roots are evident in the the tree so to speak and the organism even yeah this anticipates the a neuropsychology a neuropsych- mm-hmm. the, the neuropsychological reflections or we might indulge here in trying to understand what this experience is like and 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 the and the one word which covers and recapitulates everything that we are trying to say here is is perhaps animism and animism which should be understood as provoking these uh, other orientations in the feelings these transformations of the individual self let's leave it there and we'll pick it up on the next segment catch you on the flip-flop gang pulling up to mickey d's just for drinks oh yeah that's me nothing extra just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks then there are drinks from mcdonald's Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back, uh, all you archaeology podcasters, to the Rock Art Podcast. We're in our second segment. We're welcoming uh, Tertha Mukahabade talking about the archaeology of emotions and its relationship to Rock art. Tertha, I wanted to mention something that I that that came to mind when we're talking about emotions and and the uh, the group ceremonies. It appears to me that there's these aggregation events or aggregate events that occur for uh, preliterate peoples, and they try to time them to the uh, seasonal round when there's uh, sufficient food to support, you know, a group of people. They would do a round a round dance, as they mm-hmm. call it. And I think the women would be in, in one area and the men would be in another. And they would move around into circle. Mm-hmm. And as they moved and they stopped with the uh, drumming and the singing, they would pound the ground with their feet. And when asked by anthropologists why they did that, they said, we're waking up Mother Earth and reminding her to replenish the needed foods, both plants and animals, and uh, in turn, provide the uh, wherewithal that we need to sustain our lives. That's a wonderful way of uh, saying that the uh, religions of the indigenous populations, not just in the Great Basin, 
instance that you give here. But everywhere, I mean, in the dance, the rhythmic performances of these uh, annual festivities, festivities of harvest, spring, you know, when Mother Mother Earth is coming back to life and the, the, or in the, the promise of abundance, I mean, including such uh, living customs as that of Halloween, for instance, you know, and uh, where it's, it's all connected to how the, uh, the earth gets replenished for us. So we also offer not just to ourselves, but to the spirits. This is part of the, uh, you know, that it's a, it's a very primitive belief that is still very active in our imaginations. And we can only make a fallacy, a categorical mistake, if we consider this uh, as superstition, as a superstition of, of people who have not invented a positivist scientific view of the world where uh, nature is essentially dead and inanimate. And even in the literature of rock art, there is this growing recognition of the need to consider rock art to, uh, to say that, that the, the only way of appreciating rock art is through an understanding of this kind of animistic lens uh, where the... Uh, conventional anthropological distinctions between the, between the subjects and inanimate objects out there in nature will no longer hold water and that, 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 that we have to set ourselves up as part of an active continuum. And so the distinction uh, that nature does not have life, that, that that winds are not, you know, the very movement of of the winds and the the interactions of these natural forces with rocks, the the sway of trees, water. These are living living things, and they they have movement, and you know, so to speak. If, even if they do not manifest the sense, the the characteristics of of biological life, but they are part of of that of that foundation of of the biome, which makes life to appear in the first place. Well, I always, I always use this analogy. When the anthropologists and the researchers went down to South America to uh, identify the uh, psychotropic plants that were being used by shamans in terms of their ceremonies, their religious uh, and, and their medical associations, they have an elaborate way of doing that. They have to use a certain plant. It has to be only certain parts of that plant. It has to be acquired at a certain season. It has to be mixed up with other plants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's it's elaborate. It's complex. It's something that would not be easily discerned. And the scientists and the medical professionals who are down there ask these uh, native people, "How the heck did you ever get?" Uh, to an understanding of how to employ these plants in such a way to use them medicinally and also to develop these uh, altered states of consciousness and enter into this connection with the ethereal plane. And they had a very simple answer. They says, well, we, 
we talk to the to the plants and they tell us. <laughs> and and I know that I know that's 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 a bit, you know, uh, how would you put this? Maybe tongue in cheek, but it's not. These are these are entities that have agency and have life in them. And we may not understand that from a Cartesian or a Western understanding, but somehow or other, this knowledge has been discerned by the shamans and the ritual adepts to garner it from the natural world. Yes, this what this was uh, <clears throat> this uh, this this notion, or we we can call it a, a worldview, uh, an an attitude, a behavior which is ingrained in us. This ten- tendency to ascribe anthropomorphic characteristics, human-like agencies to objects. To, to the plants. Uh, this is part of that continuum of uh, not just plants, natural phenomena, or plants, or animals, but also a chain which continues um, through the uh, through the ministrations of the human being and connects us to the, the, the invisible, this plenum of gods, spirits, demons, spirit beings, soldiers, animal masters, you know. And whenever humanity was portraying itself on the rocks, this story, it's, an, it's a neo-narrative it's a, it's a narrative of the invisible but what is more interesting in this narrative because because all these depictions represent something moving forward you know that word which is used in film film criticism and film anthropology the meta cinema the mm-hmm. meta cinema of images it's not what you see that tells us the story but also what you don't see in this in the shot or on the screen, but something which you already know. The references that are already implicit in the sequence of images, which is the total experience of of uh, watching a movie or or participating in a ritual performance of a kind that you mention, beating the earth so to wake it up, to make it sentient. I guess this this kind of attitude of the religious believers is reflected in the in the depictions and in their perception of nature. And this could or should uh, give us the the right kind of instruments for looking not just at rock art, but also considering what we are, what is our portrait, because the rock art divinities, the deities are also 
portraits, self-portraits made by humanity. Yet they are a portrait of a different self that is within within us, within humanity, and a self which is endowed with power, with control, a, a self which is comforting, reassuring, a self which has given us a symbol of all the benedictions, of all the benefits and, and the abundance and fertility of life and uh, the great... Uh, reassurance or comfort that that despite the way generations are cut down in time and that we die and that the loved ones depart and pass on to the other side there's a continuity there's a continuum there's a there's sort of a, an ethereal thread of life just and life and life is there emblazoned on the rocks when you see emblazoned an uh, an upturned bloated bighorn sheep with a with a um, you know some sort of a dart in its belly, and then the next yes. image bl- below it being a mother mm-hmm. bighorn sheep with a a, a a small little infant sheep, it's the same binary opposition, the same thread, the same message, the same uh, instantaneous communication of life and death, sustainability, again, some sort of reverence for the dilemma we have of dealing with our, uh, you know, our, our brief passage on the planet and the uh, passage of time and the loss of life and the loss of loved ones. This is uh, something which has been pointed out by, by many, many philosophers and thinkers and traditions and different cultures and religions, isn't it? And that uh, the human being has a tendency to anchor or latch on to something which may be uh, a figment of the imagination or, or a fantasy, but yet at the same time, it's, it's very emotionally, it, it, is very, it is very true it is an authentic human experience and the way for us uh, going forward as, as humanity, as pro-social animals, as being there together and dancing to the rhythm of the life that comes from nature and, and that connects us to the, to the cosmodrome. And isn't this all sort of uh, encircling or sort of referencing the origin of religion. Yes, of course, and the so the the point that we return to here is that it's this emotional, emotive experiences at the base of all our religious and artistic expressions that that matters, and that we begin to see them in the rock art, and that is what rock art teaches us. What teaches us rock art is what we are as humans and uh, if the the shamans did not have any other message they at least uh, tried to remind us after several centuries uh, this great span of time they have tried to show us that that this 
that there is reason for us to to be comforted and to be in the company of of these uh, gods and goddesses who are a reflection of our more uh, refined and superior, more harmonious selves. Absolutely. Well, that's the second segment. <laughs> See you in the flip-flop, gang. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back, all you uh, archaeology podcasters, to the Rock Art Podcast. We're uh, taking a deep dive into the archaeology of emotions and talking about the origin of religion and what makes rock art tick. And uh, during this last segment, we're going to talk a little bit about sacred narrative and the uh, mythologies, the, the stories that are, in fact, emblazoned upon the stones and how those are characterized. Tertha, kick it off for me, please. Thank you very much, Alan. Yes, the last segment can be devoted to an understanding of, you know, these or extending the lessons that we learn from rock art, the beautiful narrative of sustenance, of sustainability, of being in tune with the logical, the harmony of the universe, call it the Tao of the universe, call it the sense of being out there uh, like... Toro characterized of man in wilderness. And I, and I think that in certain occasions, it's, it's not, it may be common, it may be uncommon to have the creation stories, the sacred narratives actually depicted or characterized within the rock art imagery itself. A- am I correct? Yes, of course, but what seems more fascinating? I, I just want yes. to. I, I, maybe Please. I'm jumping. I'm, I'm jumping with your kind permission. But, but the the creation stories they are so important to the sacred narratives of all cultures, irrespective of the time scale that we consider. Not just in the cultures of Native America, of North America, but the, throughout the, the world. Throughout the world, throughout the world, yes. The creation stories, for instance, the creation story of the book of Genesis, creation story in the sacred narrative of the Aztecs, the the, the father and mother of Quetzalcoatl, the, the winged serpent, and this great 
indifferent, maybe uh, inebriated or, you know, intoxicated father creator who created and forgot about creation and all these very nuanced, funny, interesting ways of storytelling that is inherent in, in the sacred narratives of the world. They point towards... Uh, the creation of the world. But but what I wanted to go ahead talking about is the way in which the narrators, the earliest narrators, handle the theme of time because no amount of logical, rational narrative skills will enable humans to speak of of a so-called past and and creation of coming forward to having been created at some point of time or through some phase of history i mean how do we speak of the whole story of creation in an, in a moment or through one metaphor or through one image that great challenge it's a challenge that, that the very limits of, of being a human imposes on the storyteller. But at the same time, the, the metaphorical imagination, the, the, the sensitivity to the, the silence, towards the silence as much as towards the acoustics of it, this helps the narrator to talk about uh, creation in the way they do in the in the sacred narratives of creation for example if we if we think of the book of genesis and those seven days in which god creates adam the, the creation of the human uh, well the male comes first and and eve is created from the ribs of Adam, and you know that's that sequence. It's it's is it a time sequence? It's a it's a it's both a time sequence. It's both a narrative in time and it's not in time. And from the deep waters, and God's spirit hovers over the darkness of the waters, and, and then it's created. If you look at some of the African or South Asian or the uh, Siberian myths of creation. There's the same reference to the waters, to a, a primeval ocean or a darkness and the coming of a bird or the command of, of a Sengbonga. I mean, some scholars have went out to the extent of identifying linguistic equivalents in the names and etymology of the gods and goddesses. We are dealing with a very uh, long time frame of sacred narratives. But at the same time, there is this coming together of two principles, a male and a female, or darkness and light. And there is a creation. The the world comes into being and humanity appears. And this whole, whole sacred narrative of creation and the deity and it's a deity. This process, there could be no other, no better way to incorporate 
that incredibly that in that infinite that history on uh, which occurred on a scale that would beat any kind of imagination and it gets represented in a figure in a human figure who did that so what what do we derive from that that story of of the egg of a bird laying an egg in the in the darkness of waters you know it's it's just that the answers are not to be found in uh, not through a process of quantifications the answers are to be found in our emotional responses to the world yeah you're exactly right yeah it's meant to be evocative it's meant to be emotional it's meant to not only entertain but but tug at your heartstrings right to, to further connect you to something beyond yourself beyond your small and and uh, diminutive presence uh, here on the globe on on earth and somehow feel that you're connected to something greater than yourself some some broad pattern an epic story an epic story correct yes yes the the or, the origins of epics and the creation stories they they are they all refer back to to this understanding of 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 a benevolence of a, a of abundance bounty you could call it bounty even for humanity in, in its hunter gatherer forager context yeah yeah in 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 my publications i've called them increase rights <laughs> or or you know having some sort of right. an understanding of uh, of of a collaboration or a connection of a group of people trying to enforce some sort of a prayer or right. some sort of a, a benevolence from a supernatural deity is that correct yeah. Yes, yes, of course. It's in in the word increase, which uh, increase rights. It's it's a very significant phrase, I guess, which is which appears in many of your um, uh, papers on the on the on the rock arts, really on the on the on the ethnography, the ethnographic uh, records of yeah of the cultures of of the California. We're dealing with issues of fertility. Obviously, it was. Incredibly important to the preliterate societies to be able to have a child, have a child yes. that's that's healthy, and have it live long enough to procreate and continue the the bloodline. And yes. uh, that's not such an easy thing to do if you're a hunter gatherer faced with starvation or faced with the vagaries of an environment that's unpredictable. Correct. Right, and uh, more, moreover, the, the great danger of competing groups, competition, and uh, survival, because it's it's also intrahuman that there are these uh, untold, unexpected threats from different angles, and and war, the possibility of uh, the breakout of conflicts within those uh, internecine tribes. 
and uh, populations for the same resources. And if you if you look at the story of Quetzalcoatl, uh, who comes, Quetzalcoatl is like one of those versions of the legend of Quetzalcoatl among the Aztecs, and in generally not just the Aztecs, but also the the other related, the contiguous cultures like the you know that the, the word is Huasteca, the Huastecs, mm-hmm. who, who refer to the, the various denominations that came into contact with the Aztecs, although the Aztecs were the you know, were the most prominent ones and advanced. Uh, the material culture advancement was uh, most prominently expressed among the Aztecs. But the Huastecas have one version of the Quetzalcoatl myth where Quetzalcoatl, where is he? He he belongs to the winds and he would come and there is this prophecy, there is this prediction who who would come to a kingdom whose ruler is uh, a warmonger and who is violent and who who is irrational, who has to emit these negative energies, not just to, you know, defend, but it's, it's there's no defense. There's only greed, perhaps, symbolized in, in the figure of Huemak. And uh, Quetzalcoatl appears when Quetzalcoatl really appears and confronts Huemak. The king is completely overwhelmed overwhelmed, not just by the power, by something physically identifiable, but by the peace, by the harmony, by the message, as Quetzalcoatl offers to bring together as the, all the conflicts and the dark energies of night and to express as a god of the dawn. So the sense of the dawn, the divinity, is always identified with with sustenance, as you call them, the increased rights, with peace, with all that is helps preserve the dynamics of the system rather than create a disidic equilibrium. And the sacred narratives are always are always returning us to this theme. It's regenerative. If they're looking at the cosmos, right? You've you've got the night star and the day star. You've got the seasonal cycles, the, the seasonal cycles. But also, it has to do with with sort of the the the, the resurrection of life, life from death. As as the sun sets, it then arises. As the moon comes, it grows in pieces, and then it's birthed, and then it becomes invisible, and it comes back again. As you look at the natural world, it is shouting to you conceptually about the concept of a start, a finish, visible, invisible, light, dark, the underworld and the sky world. It's almost as though the environment is teaching you or showing you the cosmological nexus that you portray, correct? And the story continues. Yes, yes, absolutely. 
And unfortunately, the story is about ready to end for us <laughs> today. <laughs> and, I, and, and so uh, I'll give you the last word, Tertha. Well, it has been a great experience uh, talking to you on this platform. And uh, especially, I feel honored and privileged to have launched this, this notion of the archaeology of emotions. And I only hope that we take it forward, that our listeners also feel that there is much to think about in this whole project of the transformation of the positive sciences. Sounds good. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Take care. Thank you, Tertha. God bless. Thank you. And uh, see you again shortly. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. .com.